Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the controversial overdose prevention site in Yaletown, long opposed by many neighborhood residents there. The city now saying they have heard the complaints they will not renew the lease at this facility. Have a listen to City Councillor Pete Meisner here speaking yesterday to Jill Bennett. I field several emails a day uh, from neighbours who are concerned about uh, how uh, things have uh, quickly deteriorated outside the site. Uh, so that's everything from uh, needles, uh, camping on the sidewalk, uh, fights, uh, street disorder, uh, garbage, uh, drug paraphernalia. Uh, and it is an area with a lot of families. Okay, supporters of the site, though, fighting to keep it open. Let's discuss now with my guest, Bill Thielman. Bill is a a community advocate. He's a communications and strategy consultant, former Vancouver City Council candidate. Bill, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Do you think this is the right decision by the city here to to not renew the lease on this facility? Absolutely. There's no way that you can do harm reduction, which I do support, by harming the neighborhood in a a very significant way. And this was a a poorly thought out, poorly executed plan from the get-go, it appears. And uh, so I I applaud City Council for putting putting the fist down on that one and say, like, no, this isn't working. It's causing way too much trouble in the neighborhood. It's not supportable. And and that's what should have happened. Where is the poor planning? Because we're told that this part of Vancouver has got like the second highest number of overdose deaths right behind the downtown east side. So doesn't it need one of these facilities? Well, I think that if you talk to people in the neighborhood, I mean, people who live in the neighborhoods, and I know some of them, uh, they're not opposed to having facilities. There are existing facilities that are working fine without the disruption, without the street traffic and street the disturbances that are going on with this one. So they didn't figure out that this site would not work. It's a very small site as well. And if you look at your, the front page of the province of the Vancouver Sun this morning, you'll see exactly what it means. There's, there's a dozen or more people outside in various uh, various states of uh, drug use, and uh, that's just not going to work in an, in an area where you've got thousands of, of people who live there, kids going to school, everything else. You just can't do it. And so I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of mystified as to why they started in 2021 with this location. And pretty clearly, like these things, you know, you have to be very, very careful where you locate uh, a site for overdose prevention, which includes consumption, safe consumption of both injectables and smokables. And in this case, it didn't work. And we've seen other examples. I, I, I'm more worried about the, than this one about the Arbutus BC housing uh, proposal uh, because it's going to be right across the street from a school. And they will, uh, according to their own question and answers, they've said that they will have an uh, injection site for residents there. Yeah, let's have a listen to City Councillor Christine Boyle here, and she supports the facility in Yaletown. She's unhappy that it's will be effect, it looks like it's going to be shut down, and she says, "Look, not only does it need to stay there, it needs to be enlarged." Let's have a listen to the councillor here, and I'll get your thoughts. What we actually need is a larger site there, um, and we also need provincial support to provide the sorts of wraparound services that uh, that help life-saving facilities like this better integrate into the neighborhood. So I've been pushing for all of those things to make sure we're supporting people and keeping them alive and improving how um, services fit into neighborhoods as well. 
Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle speaking yesterday to our own Jazz Joe Bill, what do you think about what she had to say? She said, don't shut it down. Actually, you need to enlarge it. Well, Christine Boyle, the city councillor, is not addressing the concerns of the neighbours whatsoever. I mean, just saying we should we should make it bigger makes no sense when it's already a, a huge problem for the residents and not actually doing what it needs to be uh, doing for people who are who need the the overdose pre- prevention services. So we have to find a better way to do it. It has to be located in a way that it's not going to disrupt with with street disturbances and all the other things that have been happening at this site. Like this, Mike, this has been a problem from day one. The people who were yeah. uh, in that neighborhood said this is a bad idea for this location. Don't do it. As soon as it opened, there was problems, repeated problems, street crime, violence, threats, uh, needles in parks, the whole, everything you can think about going wrong with an injection and an inhalation site has happened at this site. So um, I, I'm not the expert on locating and finding them, but I do know that they can exist they can coexist if they do the right planning and if neighbors are well, consulted properly but this one was dumped in there and and it, it didn't work and, and the city is uh, now realizing that and stopping it which is good well one of the things that councillor boyle has argued though is that because there's such a high overdose death rate in this part of the city it is required and she said that it, the reason it should be bigger is that people are they have nowhere to chill out, basically, after they consume drugs on the site. So people will go in, they will use, they will come out, and then they're and then they're high on on the street outside. So you need a, a bigger place, you know, for people to use safely. Does that make any sense to you? Well, it, it, if you follow along the line of argument to a certain degree, yes, because this is a small space. I believe it's under 600 square feet, which again yeah. uh, doesn't give you doesn't give very many people. Uh, spaces there but but to make that space larger would be crazy i mean that it, it doesn't work there it's been proven over and over again so i i think that uh, but you know at some point we have to talk about are are we just facilitating and making it easier and easier for people to use very dangerous drugs tainted with fentanyl tainted with other other substances um at, without the appropriate uh, movement towards rehabilitation and treatment and and getting out of uh the tainted drug life I mean, and, that, and you know, people are talking about harm reduction, but they're not talking about the other parts, which we've seen in other countries like Portugal that you need to have. And that includes, in some cases, mandatory treatment for people who are really uh, unable to function in this world without drugs. And, and uh, we're not doing them any favors to leave them on the street, fending for themselves, yeah. drug addicted and, and uh, uh, heading towards an early death. Well, let's listen to another clip here of city councillor peter meisner here who has said the city will not renew the lease on this facility that they have heard the complaints from the people in the neighborhood now he does say though with a high overdose death rate in this part of the city they still need an overdose prevention site somewhere so let's let's have a listen to what he says on that point then i'll get your thoughts pete meisner Downtown South, as I mentioned, does have the second uh, highest number of overdoses in the city, that particular neighbourhood. So there is a clear need for the site somewhere within downtown South. I wouldn't necessarily say in Yaletown in particular. This site is really on the border of Yaletown. It's not actually really in Yaletown. It's adjacent to it. Um, but there is a clear need in downtown South for an overdose prevention site. Do you, Bill, do you agree with that, that there should be a facility somewhere in that region of the city? 
Yeah, I, I agree with the, the counselor, and I think that is correct. But it, it can't be, again, it can't be one where it gets set up and instantly becomes a magnet for street disturbances and crime and trouble. I mean, that just doesn't work. And well, I don't where, think, where is it going to work, anybody. though? Where well, is it going to work? We don't, we don't have the same issues around the Insight site when it was first set up and, and subsequently, and it's been it's proven successful. I, you know, I can't tell you exactly down to the block where it should be. I don't think it should yeah. be on Granville Street, which would be asking for more trouble uh, because you're introducing a whole bunch of other elements there. But, you know, the, the most important thing is to take the time to figure out where it should be, which wasn't done in this case, and, and consult with neighbors and explain it. And unfortunately, every time the the um, folks who do overdose prevention sites do a hasty job and put it somewhere where it causes all these problems means it makes it that much harder to find a new location anywhere in the city. Uh, and we've seen this with other spots as well. Uh, you have to do it right the first time and get it right. Uh, otherwise, it makes everybody just says not a chance. We have all sorts of facilities for uh, different things for people with, with mental illness, for people who are suffering other addictions that are working and functioning quite well in my community in Kitsilano, uh, in Yaletown, and all over the city that have done it right and have done it for, for a long time because they've got the fundamentals down. You can't just throw it in and say, let's hope it works. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue talking about the overdose prevention site in Yaletown, it has been a lightning rod for controversy in that neighborhood. Vancouver now saying the lease will not be renewed at that facility. There is commitment to relocate it somewhere else in South Vancouver. Please call me on this. If you live in that neighborhood and you have any experience there with what's happening around that facility, please call me. Star 9898 is the number toll-free on your cell. Bill Thielman is my guest. Let's listen to another clip here of City Councillor Christine Boyle, who supports the site in that neighborhood and wants to keep it in place. Here's what she had to say. This site is keeping people alive, and taking it away won't solve anything. Um, it will lead to more drug poisoning deaths uh, and and more street disorder because people won't have a place to go. So um, what I've been hoping to hear from Councillor Meisner and ABC is what their solution is. Okay, Bill, are you buying that? Then I've heard this from other supporters of the facility. Actually, if you shut it down, you're going to have the, the opposite effect of what you want. There'll be even more disorder in the neighborhood if you shut it down. Your thoughts? Well, I think what they've done is concentrated, and I don't think that's a good idea at all. But, you know, Mike, you got to look at this site. There's there's no security. There's no mental health support. There's no medical support. Uh, there's no standards. There's no pathways to, to detox and treatment services. It's just, uh, here's a place you can take some drugs. Uh, that's not, that's not going to well, solve thought, the I problem. There, I thought there was. Like, if someone goes in well, there and says, hey, okay. I want to get clean, aren't they supposed to help you find a place? Well, yes. Absolutely. That's yeah. what they should be doing. But that's not my understanding of what's been happening there. And certainly, uh, you know, we, we look at uh, <laughs> drug overdose deaths every month from the corner and, and it's it's either a new record or close to the old record. It's it's bad, yeah. bad, bad. So what, what we're doing is not working so far. And, uh, you know, as I said before, I think at some point politicians have to take the tough stand that we, we're going to have to have some mandatory treatment. And David Eby has talked about this. Mayor Leonard Krogan and Naimo has talked about this. Uh, we can't just say, here, here's here's a place you can do drugs and here's a safe supply, which often is being sold to, to buy stuff with fentanyl in it because it's stronger. Uh, and here's this and that and not 
have any expectation that you're going to start moving towards getting off of drugs, which is, I mean, all of these drugs are deadly. I mean, it, you know, yeah. you can't say, you can, it just frustrates me when people say, oh, it's going to create more drug overdose deaths. Well, people who are taking drugs are taking their lives in their hands, they're playing Russian roulette every single time they use these dangerous, dangerous drugs. And so uh, that's the problem we have to solve, not places to do the dangerous drugs. We have to find places to put people doing dangerous drugs into rehab. Let's go take some calls here. George on the line in Vancouver. Hi, George, what do you think? Yeah, uh, big fan of Bill's. Uh, connect with him on Twitter regularly. Uh, thank you, Bill, for your eminent common sense on this issue. Again, simply speaking, the goal needs to be getting people off drugs, not supplying them and letting them ruin, continuing to watch them ruin their lives. It's horrible. Make one point. we got a new hospital. Uh, we're investing a couple of $3 billion on it. Uh, completion date 2026, 2027. That's where there should be a world-class rehab facility coupled with the hospital security and other facilities on that site. And whatever decision is made next needs to be an interim decision towards that goal. My daughter lives at uh, Seymour and Drake uh, in a newer building, which has had uh, all kinds of crime, break-ins in cars, parkades, needles everywhere. And it's it, the externalities caused by this decision the unintended consequences are severely affecting the neighborhood. That was never considered. Uh, every pharmaceutical, you got to put all the side effects there. They don't do it with these policy decisions. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank, thank, thank you, George. Thank you, George, for the call. Let's squeeze in one more. Colin in Nanaimo. Colin, hi. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Colin Middleton is, is, with a, is a public safety advocate in Nanaimo, and he's been a guest on the show before. Colin, you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say I agree with everything Bill's saying, and I think also our our um, experience in Nanaimo was we had a, a site at 264 Nickel Street that came in unannounced, just popped up, and it was just nothing but mayhem for several months until it finally um, was declared a nuisance property, and that ended up making it uh, so that people had to, to go somewhere else. In the meantime, they had uh, the CMHA, the Canadian Mental Health Association, set up a, a safe consumption site uh, right around the corner from City Hall, across the street from both um, Lisa Marie Barron's and Sheila Malcolmson's constituency office. That one has got, been in operation for a while with really no objection. Uh, okay. It seems to be run well. And so it's all about you need to can't have it in a residential area. Here. Thanks for th- Colin, thank you for calling in. Bill, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Let's talk about the skyrocketing rents in Metro Vancouver. Just taking a look at some of the latest numbers out from rentals.ca. They do a very good job there of tracking rental rates across the entire country. The most expensive rents in Canada? Yeah, of course it is Vancouver. Just check out some of these numbers here. This is kind of shocking. A one-bedroom. Okay, so a one-bedroom apartment in Vancouver, nearly $3,000 a month, the highest in the country. Who can afford the 3000 bucks a month for a one-bedroom? A two-bedroom in Vancouver, nearly 3900 a month rent in Vancouver. Okay, you start looking a little further out, right? It's expensive all across Metro Vancouver. In the city of Burnaby, okay, Vancouver is number one. Burnaby right behind as the, with the most expensive rents in the country. A one-bedroom in Burnaby, nearly $2,600 a month. 
two bedroom, thirty three hundred bucks a month in, in Burnaby. Who can afford this? We've talked to lots of people on the show who are really, really struggling to find a decent, affordable place to rent. And the jam that a lot of people find themselves in is they are renovated or the home is sold or a family member is going to move in. So the place that they have and that they can afford and that they like is gone. You were evicted. Now you've got to find a new place. And of course, as soon as an old tenant moves out, the landlord can now charge a higher rent. The rent control limits don't apply when you've got a new tenant. So for people who are moving out and they're looking, it is a desperate search for many people. Have a listen to Melanie McDermott here. She is a single mom, okay? She has four kids, lost the place where she was living. She is looking for a place for herself and her four kids have a listen to her here talking to CTV. It's just going up and up on a monthly basis rather than an annual basis. So I've been searching every day and the odd one will pop up in that radius that I'm trying to stay within. And sometimes there's nothing or sometimes it's just so far out of the budget that I can't even consider it. Okay, this is really, really difficult stuff. We've talked to a lot of people in similar situations, even people who have got a good job. They're making good money. Uh, I spoke to a guy on the show a couple of weeks back who's making 75k a year. He's got a good job with Telus. Again, single dad. He's got a, a 18 year old son at home. He says he can't he can't find any place in Metro that he can afford, and he's making 75 thousand dollars a year. What is the answer here? Let's discuss now with my guest Adil Denani from the Denani Group of Real Estate Advisors. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Adil, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. appreciate you having me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. And Adil, you've got your finger on the pulse here of this market. And we all know that the price to buy a place is very, very high in Metro Vancouver. But these rents, like these surging rents that are going on, I know this is all connected, right? Where do you, how do you explain this? I mean, is this just inflation, interest rates, just basic supply and demand? Why is this happening? It's a great question. I'm, you know, we are definitely on the front line here. Um, you know, I've been a practitioner in the business for, you know, on the front line for about 18 years now, and I have never seen a rents escalate at the level they have in the last 24 months. You know, over two, you know, it's the fastest escalation period that I've seen in the last two decades, and I think it's attributed to like a whole host of things. Um, you know, you touched on it. You know, um, prices for ownership have gotten so high that. Um, that a lot of those would-be buyers are now shifting to the rental market. And what yeah. that does, it, it, it creates more competition. Also, um, um, when you have rates um, where they are, it's becoming increasingly challenges, e- even for landlords, to service their mortgages because we've had 10 um, you know, Bank of Canada increases in the last 18 months, including two in the last 60 days, which is further putting pressure on folks that own these properties in terms of their carrying costs and overall ability to sustain their rentals. Yeah, for sure. There's like a domino effect that happens here and it affects the uh, the whole market. What about supply, basically supply and demand? Like we hear a lot about this, that we've got a growing population. We've got very lofty immigration targets in our country. So there's going to be lots more people moving to Metro Vancouver. You've got more people competing to to find a decent, affordable place to rent. But we're also falling behind on new housing starts. 
I mean, the math here just doesn't compute for, for me. What do you think? I am on the same page with you. I'm going to make a bold prediction and state that the federal government is going to revisit their immigration um, targets. Um, yeah. If you look at um, the month of June, it was the first time in the history of Canada we hit 40 million um, you know, folks in the country. And the Canadian Immigration Department has these really ambitious targets of, of bringing in about half a million immigrants into the country every year up until 2025. This is going to further amplify what we're already experiencing. I think the federal government's going to see some pressure um, from uh, provincial governments to revisit those numbers. And look, immigration is great. And Canada has yeah. been known to have a culture, you know, a culture of inclusivity and, um, um, and, and, and a strong, strong position on multiculturalism. But the reality is bringing in more people into the country is going to put upward pressure on both rents and real estate prices. And I think if you look at 10-year average, Mike, we're actually um, doubling um, our 10-year targets. Typically, we're seeing about a quarter million immigrants coming to Canada every year, and now we're hitting these half a million, um, you know, 500,000 numbers. It's going to certainly put um, more pressure and amplify the already existing housing crisis we're in. Yeah. Speaking to Adil Danani, Danani Group of Real Estate Advisors. So, you know, I've, I've heard this a lot that the the immigration numbers are, are, are really not sustainable. But, you know, we need skilled workers. That's why the government is trying to bring in more skilled immigrants to the country. Uh, we need more people working and paying taxes to sustain our social safety net, especially for people who are retired and they're collecting sure. Canada pension and old age security and Medicare. We need more. We need more people. Like I think everybody kind of understands that, but where are they going to live? And when you take a look at the housing starts in Canada right now, are very sluggish and slowing down. It's going in the wrong direction. And let me play a clip here for you, Adil. This is. Vancouver sure. City Councillor Peter Meisner saying, like, okay, they've heard this. They, we, he said, look, we need to build more housing. We get that. Have a listen to what he has to say here. We understand that the permitting process right now is holding up the delivery of housing. So we're streamlining that. We're allowing digital applications. And there's more work to do in terms of getting to rezonings faster. Adele, do you hear that a lot from developers, that they have trouble getting, you know, getting through the red tape to get stuff built? Yeah, there's streams of bureaucracy and red tape at every municipal um, at, at, you know, at, at any municipal, um, you know, council meeting, I've found because we we work with developers all throughout the um, all throughout the greater Vancouver region, and you know, Vancouver's putting forward this new multiplex um, policy, which is actually going to vote today, I believe, at council. Um, and if that gets passed, we're going to see a lot more infill residents. Um, and at the provincial level, um, uh, Premier Eby has actually put forward uh, an affordable housing policy, which also would look at you know, homes or, um, you know, certain certain lots that meet certain requirements to also allow more infill. So I think we're moving in the right direction. The reality is, Mike, you know, the supply issues, it's not a light switch, right? You can't just turn on more supply. It takes, unfortunately, months um, and, and, in fact, years on the bigger projects to get approved. And I think the best way to meet current and future demand of both rental housing and ownership of housing um, and as well as provide stability uh, and hopefully affordability, you know, we talk about that a lot, um, is to find a way to increase the supply. And, and I think that now that we're having these conversations and they're top of mind, and you go to any, you know, um, city council meeting um, throughout Greater Vancouver, and this is a hot topic. So I think we're moving in the right direction. And I'm hopeful and optimistic that in the coming years, we are going to see 
you know, a meaningful level of supply hit the market. Okay, when you talk about that infill housing and increased density, we've talked a lot about that on the show. The EB government here has talked about, okay, we'll let you build up to, what, four four homes on a, on a single-family lot. We need more housing, so let's densify. Do you think, I mean, you deal with people all the time who are dreaming of buying their own home. What about sure. the, the NIMBY effect? Like, if you buy you buy a home in a nice neighborhood and then... The guy next door is saying, well, you know, I'm tearing down this house. We're putting up a, a, a fourplex here. What do you think the neighborhood reaction is going to be to that type of densification? And will local politicians just cave to the nimbyism? Yeah. I mean, you look at the city of Vancouver, 70% of the housing stock is RS1 zoned. And this uh, multiplex policy is pretty much a blanket policy across all RS1 zoning. So you're going to see a big change in streetscape for sure. Yeah. Certain neighborhoods, I could certainly see pushback, but I mean, at the end of the day, if it's mandated on a provincial level, it has to be adopted by, I'm assuming it has to be adopted um, on a municipal level. Um, I think that the reality is if we want to address the, the you know, the, the, the larger issue of, of supply, the larger issue of affordability, we are going to need to see more, um, um, more product come to market. And I think the, um, the city is also, stating that now they're also, they're actually provisioning to reduce the like if you had a lot um, they're actually going to bonus you if you're going to build a multiplex which is four to six units but they're going to penalize you if you're going to build a single family home and they're going to reduce the density uh, so they don't want to see like i think this is almost like if i were to put it boldly if these policies get adopted this is going to be the death of the single family home in the city of vancouver Adele, thank you for coming on with your thoughts and analysis today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the road to net zero energy emissions now. The aggressive drive for clean power and especially the transition to electric vehicles. The plan in Canada for 100% new EV sales. How are we going to do this? How are we going to build all these car batteries, especially when we need all those minerals like nickel and copper and cobalt? Could the answer lie on the ocean floor, deep sea mining for the minerals that we need for this transition? Let's discuss that now with my guest, Gerard Barron. Gerard is the CEO of the Metals Company which is a Canadian company uh, looking to develop this resource. Gerard, thank you for coming on today. Mike, my pleasure. How are you? I'm doing great, and I appreciate your time because I find this an absolutely fascinating topic. So uh, thank you for coming on. So tell me a little bit about the metals company and what you guys are trying to achieve here because you, you argue that a lot of these minerals that we need, we don't need to dig them up out of the ground on land. We can just get them on the floor of the, the ocean floor, correct? That's our belief, Mike. And what the metals company are focused on is developing our resource in the Pacific Ocean. It's about a thousand miles off the coast of Mexico in a little patch known as the Clarion Clipperton Zone. And for your listeners, think of it as a uh, potato sized rocks fit into the palm of your hand. And they literally form by a very slow precipitation process. They precipitate the metals that are in the seawater or the sediment. So they grow like a pearl grows, and they're literally lying on the ocean floor, a little bit like golf balls on a driving range. And 
if you imagine where to put such a big resource, and on two of our licensors, we've identified 1.6 billion tons of these nodules, and then they're very high in grades of nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese. And if you had to imagine where would you put such a big, abundant resource, the abyssal zone of our ocean must be the best place imaginable because it's about 4,000 meters below sea level. There is zero flora, so no plants at all. And if you were to measure the amount of life down there, and let's use the introductory measurement of biomass, there's around 10 grams of biomass per square meter, and more than 80% of that is bacteria living in the sediment. Because there's no food down there, obviously there's no light, but there's very little food, which means that low energy. So you don't find a lot of life moving around that part of the ocean floor. And, and of course, what we need to think about is what the alternative is. Because yeah. there, are some great, there are some great mining companies in Canada, of course, and there are some parts of our planet where mining gets a thumbs up. But there are some parts of our planet where there should not be mining. And, and if you look at where 100% of the growth in nickel is coming from, it's coming from what we call rainforest nickel because it's nickel laterites that form through wet leaching over many millions of years and they sit underneath the rainforest. So to get to them, you've got to remove the rainforest. And that's just the beginning of the problem. Destroy okay. the biodiversity. Okay, this is the fascinating part is because if the alternative is land-based mining, does it not make more sense to get these minerals on the ocean floor where there's, there's less less disruption. How much of this stuff is down there? Because I know your company has done some test dives and you, you've done some pilot projects there. You mentioned a figure there of how much of this these minerals are down there. How, how much are we talking about here? Well, they estimate there's around 270 million tons of nickel. So it's very, very large. And, and actually, when it comes to nickel and cobalt and manganese, it's estimated that 70% of the known reserves are on this on, on our entire planet, so that seventy percent is in this one deposit known as the Clary, in the Clarion Clipperton Zone, compared to thirty percent around all the countries in the world on land. So it's a huge resource. And I was speaking to Gerard Barron, CEO of the Metals Company. We're talking about deep sea deep sea mining. Okay, Gerard. Obviously, of course, there's a big environmental fight over this. You've got opponents who say that no, 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 we should not do this. We should not disturb the ocean floor to retrieve these minerals. Uh, I you just I heard you. I listened carefully to the points you're making there about the biodiversity there that is so deep in the ocean. But let me play a clip here for you from. From one of your from one of your opponents here, and get your thoughts. So this is Diva Anand, who is a deep sea marine biologist at the University of California, and saying that look, it, even four thousand meters down, like you said, it's not it's not as desolate as people might think. Let's listen. People do have this idea of a dark, barren, desolate place that the deep sea is, but actually, it's so far from that. There. Are thousands upon thousands of species that live there as we said many of them new to science okay this is a, a frequent criticism Gerard what do you say to that that if you do this if you go to, if you send down submersibles down there to scoop all this stuff up you're going to you're going to damage a lot of rare species down there your thoughts well I go back to my point that we're not saying that it's zero impact what we are saying is that the impacts are a fraction 
compared to land-based. And, and I, I hear this number about undiscovered species, and it's true because it's, it, we're still, you know, we've had 17 expeditions out to our license area, and those expeditions go for between six and eight weeks at a time. And so, you know, we've been gathering our knowledge about this environment for the last decade, and that others have been studying this part of the ocean since the 1970s. So the notion that we don't know enough about it or much about it is wrong. But let me go back to species, because, you know, they estimate there's five to 8,000 species that are yet to be identified in the, in the deep ocean, in the CCZ. But this is where you need to have context, because in Indonesia rainforest alone, they estimate there are 300,000 unidentified species. And so, mm. you know, in a world where we have to make some really tough choices, it's, it's about trade-offs. It's like, okay... So these are the known impacts if we go down and pick up rocks from the CCZ. Yeah. This is how we can mitigate those impacts. But these are the knowns that have impact with some of this rainforest nickel mining. And they're tough choices, Mike, but they're yeah. tough choices that we need to make for the benefit of our, our planet. Because, of course, the biggest threat to our oceans is global warming through acidification. And the only way we can address global warming is if we start a more aggressive push away from hydrocarbons. And that's going to require billions of tons of new metals. And of yeah. course, you know, question is, where on earth are they going to come from? And so what I'd say to my critics is, if not this, then what? And you can't just tell me that recycling is going to get us there because in the future, it will. We believe in circularity, but we are decades away from achieving that. So the question is, what do we do for the next 20, 30 years? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question, and especially when you compare it to the impact of land-based mining. We've talked on this show in the past about the mining for coal, cobalt in the Congo, for example, and some of the horrors that are going on there. And then you compare that to these metallic nodules that are just lying around on the ocean floor, as you described. Is it not you know, preferable to, to just scoop those up instead? Now, let me play another clip here for you from marine biologist Diva Anon here. So she, she's asked here, okay, what about sending down these submersibles to scoop these rocks up? They're just sitting right on the ocean floor. You don't have to dig down deep to, to mine this stuff in the ocean. And here's what she had to say about the impact, and I'll get your thoughts. A lot of that sediment is actually going to create these sort of plumes, kind of like dust storms, if you will. And then on top of that, there's going to be noise and light in these um, ecosystems that are incredibly quiet and okay. quite dark. Okay, so she says you're going to create noise and light in the deep ocean. She describes sediment that's going to be disturbed on the ocean floor when you scoop up these rocks. Gerard, what do you say to her? Mike, this is where our heavy investment in our environmental research program is starting to provide the, the real evidence that what the speculation has been is just plain wrong. So scientists such as Diva would suggest that this sediment will travel for hundreds, maybe thousands of miles. But what we've found, which is 100% consistent with three papers that MIT published last year, and that is that the sediment, when we collect these nodules, and we were out there last year for six months, right, collecting nodules, and we had another boat there filled with scientists which had about 50 devices in the water measuring sounds, measuring sediment, where did it travel? 
And what we found, consistent with the MIT papers, was that the sediment only rose about two meters above the seafloor, and up to 98% of it settled in the test area. And so the, the, the sediment, and for your listeners, think of it as when you drive your car down a dirt track and pick up some dust. But the question is how much? And so what, this, what the evidence from our heavy investment in this research program over the last decade is now showing conclusively is that the sediment hugs the seafloor and stays very localized. And of course, mm. there is also some sediment uh, because we leave about 95 to 96 percent of the sediment on the seafloor when we collect the nodules in our machine. We separate it out and then we pump up the nodules. So some sediment goes up the pipe. And then we return that water at about 1,000 to 1,200 meters below sea level. And so we also had many devices in the water that were tracking that sediment. And what we found is that it moves to background level within 200 meters from where we deposited. And so the notion that we are going to create this big dust plume in the ocean is, is being proven wrong through the data that we have been generating. And I right. think that's the exciting part for the world, that you know, a lot of the potential impacts that people have talked about when they oppose this industry is all speculation, whereas what we've focused on is we need the data. And, and that data is not being gathered by us. We've gathered the leading institutions from around the world. They're free to publish. In some cases, they like what we're doing. In some cases, they don't. But they're scientists. They just want to get the data. Okay. And so it's going to okay. be reliable. Gerard, let me ask you one more question here in the limited time that we have. So right now, th there is a campaign to place a, a moratorium on any any more of this deep-sea mining activity. Greenpeace, you've got very powerful, well-organized opponents. Greenpeace, for example, has got this campaign against this deep ocean mining. And Canada has announced that they support a, at least a, a moratorium pending more study. Let me play a clip here for you from the Natural Resources Minister here, Jonathan Wilkinson, and get your thoughts. So here's what he has to say about it. Let's listen. There's a lot more science that needs to be done before Canada would be prepared to support regulations that would enable deep sea mining. It's not no forever. Okay, so he says it's not no forever, Gerard, but he says we need more study. What do you say to him? I'd say the good news is we're doing that study. Like, we've just increased the knowledge bank in the OVIS database available for everyone. You can look at it and download it by 150% compared to all the data that's been gathered by other contractors over the last decade. And that's just the beginning. So that extra data that the minister talks about is exactly what we've been doing. It's been frustrating that we haven't been able to publish this data until, you know, we're just getting to that stage now because... You've got to gather it. Like this has been a 12-year project, Mike. And so as we start to share, and I'm down in Kingston, Jamaica, at the International Seabed Authority now, we've been making briefings to country delegations. And I think generally people are blown away with, A, the quality and the quantity of the data that we're gathering, and also the very evident impacts. And so we all want to do what's right for the planet. And so I understand why governments are being precautionary. And as they say, they're not saying no to it. They're just saying, yeah. let's get more data. And of course, okay. we do have some well-organized opponents in Greenpeace. But unfortunately, what the nation, what people like Greenpeace don't come up with is, is a solution. They just say, we want to stop everything. But we know that's not going to solve climate change. Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm fascinated by it, and we're following it closely. Gerard Barron, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Mike.
right. Let's talk about body art now, especially tattoos and body piercings, more popular than ever for many people. Can it impact your job and your career? Do people who have tattoos or body piercings face discrimination? I talked to a a buddy of mine. He had full-sleeve tattoos on his arms, and he worked in the food service industry. His boss told him, to wear long sleeve shirts at work. Basically, he was told to cover up at work. And he went along with it. He was he was okay with that. But can your boss do that? Can they tell you to cover up at work? Can they choose to hire you or fire you based on tattoos or body piercings? Got Richard Johnson standing by to discuss. Now, have a listen to this here now. This is BC mom, Brittany Draper. Now, you may have heard of this story. She was traveling on a WestJet flight uh, with her son, and WestJet called the police on her. They were worried, they were worried about the safety of the, of the son, who had just undergone some surgery, had a bit of a swollen eye. But they took, they took a look at the situation and, and wanted to check it out, make sure the child was safe. Now, she thought she had been discriminated against. She has full body tattoos okay including tattoos on her face and she said this is why she was treated that way have a listen because of my tattoos a lot of people profile me for my tattoos they just think i'm a bad influence or i'm a bad person just because i have tattoos and it's like that doesn't make you a bad person because you have tattoos and i don't think it's right people shouldn't be judged just because of the way they look or how they act Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Richard Johnson. Richard is an employment lawyer with Ascent Employment Law. Richard, very pleased to welcome you back to the show. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here. Thanks so much. You bet. Thank you. Okay, first of all, so that WestJet story was an interesting one. That went across the country and got a lot of attention. It's not really really an employment issue, but do you think, generally speaking, that some people who do have, say, a lot of tattoos or a lot of piercings, do on their body do you think they do face some discrimination at times i would not necessarily call it discrimination but do i think that there's a uh, some sort of a view of their character etc yep absolutely and rightly or wrongly i think that is the case yeah. and so i think it plays into the uh into the concern that people might have in in otherwise other circumstances yeah, I think, you know, I've heard from people who think that maybe people prejudge them depending on how many tattoos they have or how many piercings they have. And I think the interesting thing is how that relates to employment law. So that's your area of expertise, Richard. Let's let's dig into that here now. So how does this work? And let's say you apply for a job and you've got tattoos or body piercings. Can, can an, a potential employer decide to not hire you or fire you based on based on that? They sure can, but it depends. That's not going to surprise you coming from a lawyer. So let's assume it's under the uh, BC legislation. Somebody goes in for a job here in BC. The big issue is going to be whether there's discrimination under the Human Rights Code. And so under Section 13 of the Human Rights Code, it will depend on whether the tattoos are uh, culturally sensitive or whether they have ancestral um, meaning or are religious, for example. Those things can attract protection under the Human Rights Code. Okay, what about, can your boss ask you to cover up at work? Like, I had that example I cited of a a buddy of mine who had tattoos on his arms, and his boss said to him, look, I want you to wear long-sleeve shirts while you're on the job and keep your shirt sleeves rolled down so the customers don't see all the tattoos on your arms. Can your boss do that? 
a bona fide occupational requirement for it. And that's just a fancy way of saying, does the job genuinely require it? Like if you've got a professional quote unquote button down environment, you've got a brand, then as long as you're not discriminating against people based on their religion, et cetera, and you could tie it to a necessity for the job. Yeah, you can have a dress code that says we got to wear long sleeves or no face tattoos, for example. Okay, okay. The face... got... Go ahead, Richard. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you got to be careful to tie it into a genuine requirement for the job. You can't just willy nilly pick who you're going to apply that against and who you're not. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. You mentioned like tattoos on, on your face and that's intriguing because in this particular case in, in, involving this BC mom who, who had some trouble on a WestJet flight, like she has full body tattoos and in, including on her, on her face. And it's quite, quite dramatic. Do you think that makes, does that make any difference? Like if someone has tattoos on their face, do, do you think that they face any kind of scrutiny? I think they do. And I think it's a practical issue. Now, WestJet falls under the federal legislation. So it's the Canadian Human Rights Act. And so they got to be careful not to discriminate based on a whole host of things. But face tattoos in and of themselves are they're not protected unless yeah. they're religious, etc. And in this case, I think there probably was a little bit of a presumption made. And when the child, Ms. Draper's son, has a, a black eye or some sort of a, um, you know, something looks like ha something happened to his face. Yeah. They probably were quicker to act and call the police. Yeah, that's what exactly. I mean, that's what WestJet was explaining that the, the child did look like it had some swelling around his eye. Now, the mom explained, well, he just had surgery. And, and once she explained that to the police who were called, then it was they, it was fine. It was, the, you know, the, she was allowed to go go on her way and WestJet had said look we're just doing our due diligence here I mean you can't I guess you can't blame them for that no in and of, in and of itself um you know notifying police about potential harm to a child's not an issue practically yeah. you know there may have been a, a quicker response and more inclination to call the police because they made a presumption based on how Ms. Draper looked yeah yeah speaking of Richard Johnson employment lawyer assent employment law okay what about um body piercings there's sort of similar rules around employment if you have body piercings on your body can that affect your employment opportunities can you be hired or fired on anything to do with body art or body piercings yeah it's going to be a similar analysis you're going to want to make sure that you're not discriminating against people based on gender or sex you're going to want to make sure that you apply it even-handedly but i think there's going to be more understanding to an employer who says look piercings may pose a safety issue in the workplace yeah. And so Ooh. that will be where I think you run into some some more understanding for employers. But they can they can certainly make decisions about how they want to come across from a branding and reputational perspective. Yeah. But they need to apply their dress code even handedly and have it in a policy, you know. Yeah. Do you think this is something that is evolving and changing over time though? Like I, you know, I think tattoos, body piercings are becoming I'd say more more popular, maybe more socially acceptable, more common, more normal. And that that's reflected in the workplace as well, would you say? A hundred percent. And I think we're in a we're in a pretty quote unquote liberal culture out here in Vancouver. We accept all all different kinds of uh, you know, body art, et cetera, but you travel to other areas of Canada even. And I don't think that every uh, area accepts that as quickly. And so I think people self-regulate. I think most employees go into a job interview or go into a position and they kind of they cover up where they feel they might need to, where they, you know, take out piercings, et cetera. But I do think our culture is advancing specifically out here 
in BC to accept more of these things and individual uh, expression. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Another thing to keep in mind, though, and this is something that you've reminded me about in the past, is that the employer has a lot of leeway to fire an employee. Like, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, can can a boss basically fire if if a boss wants to fire you they can basically fire you as long as they give you like proper notice and severance correct yeah we've talked about that before and uh that's exactly right except where it comes to things like discrimination so they can't terminate you um or pass you over for opportunities because of one of the protected grounds so political belief for example religion race sexual orientation those are those are not grounds that they can use to to fire someone right Right, but, but otherwise, notice or pay in lieu, and you can choose to go in a different direction and to brand differently. And as long as you're not being discriminatory, employers can do it. That's right. Right, and when you okay, let's say so. Let's say you are fired or laid off. How much severance? Because a lot of people will get into a jam if they if they're fired and they don't get the proper severance that they're required to legally receive. Right, like how much severance are you supposed to receive? This is the this is the sandbox that employer employment lawyers work in. So under the Employment yeah. Standards Act. The minimum is between zero. If you've been there during the probationary time, you don't get any notice or pay up to eight weeks maximum. And that's under the legislation. Yeah. But unless there's a contract that limits your, you know, your severance to the eight weeks maximum, it can be as high as 24 months in Canada or even 27 months in some cases. Okay, very interesting. It's always it's always best to know your rights in these situations. Richard, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.